Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Previously on X-Men. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 156, X-Men First Class. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome everyone to this penultimate episode of Heroes Through the Decades. Not the penultimate episode of this podcast, but welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener to this podcast, whether you are a non-regular returning listener to this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for choosing this first class podcast. And no, that is not the last time I'm going to be using the words first class to reference this podcast or indeed this movie, because no matter how you found this podcast and this episode, so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of X-Men First Class. This is a movie that I've wanted to do for such a long time. I am a huge fan of X-Men. And I'm going to come to all of this a bit later in the episode, but X-Men resonates with me more than any other comic book characters, superhero characters, Marvel characters, anything. I've always had such an affinity to the X-Men and to the stories behind the X-Men. So this is not the first time I've covered an X-Men movie. It's not going to be the last time I'm covering an X-Men movie either. But before we go into all of that, huge thank you to everyone who's listened to, well, any episode of this podcast, but especially the previous episodes of this podcast on Blade and Spider-Man. And basically, as I said, this is a mini-series that I'm doing. It's called Heroes Through the Decades. And basically, it started in the 60s with Jason and the Argonauts, moved into the 70s with Superman, Batman was in the 80s, Blade in the 90s, and Spider-Man in the noughties slash the 2000s. And now we're moving in to the 2010s. And the 2010s is absolutely chock-a-block. An era brimming full of superhero movies. Superhero cinema was getting into its stride in the 2010s. So we've got a veritable smorgasbord 
of movies to choose from in this particular decade. And yet, it was X-Men First Class that got the golden ticket for this particular miniseries. And honestly, it was a really easy decision for me. And like I say, I've been fairly open in the past about what X-Men means to me. X-Men was my first foray into Marvel. Big fan of the animated series here, as you could probably tell from the intro. And these were the first Marvel characters that I really got to know. And also, the first characters in the superhero canon that actually made me feel like I wasn't alone. In feeling a little bit different. Because when I was a kid, I always felt a little bit different to everyone else. And that wasn't because I had mute powers, even though I'm pretty certain that I did have mutant powers at the time. I remember some leaves moving in the path and I was pretty certain I was moving them. Probably wasn't though. But I was, and still am to an extent, the weird girl in the corner. And now I'm the weird girl in the corner who has a podcast and talks to complete strangers every week. But I've always felt a very strong affinity and affection for X-Men and the characters in X-Men. And in this series, I've chosen specific movies that I really feel like have done something for heroes in cinema or have said something about heroes in cinema. And Ray Harryhausen made us all believe in monsters. Superman made us believe a man could fly. Batman made the Cape Crusader dark again. Blade gave us a kick-ass African-American hero. Spider-Man gave us the origin story of great power and great responsibility. And X-Men First Class gave us a reboot and a prequel that paid its respects to the comic book series, as well as gave us more of what we actually wanted, the relationship between Charles and Eric. But it's a movie that didn't start out that way. In fact, it started out as several different movies. Before we go into that, here's the trailer for X-Men First Class. to become part of something much bigger than yourself. What do you know about me? Everything. A new species is being born. Help me guide it. Shape it. for the tour you have no idea what I'd give to feel normal you want society to accept you but you can't even accept yourself should we have to hide tomorrow mankind will know that mutants exist they'll fear us and that fear will turn to hatred not if we stop a war not if we risk our lives doing so. We have it in us to be the better man. We already are. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. They're just kids. No, they were kids. Ready for this? Let's find out. Cost of freedom is always high. No one can foresee precisely what cost it will take. One path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender. Listen to me very carefully, my friend. Killing will not bring you peace. Peace was never an option. In 1944, the young Eric Lenscher unleashes his magnetic powers when he's separated from his mother in a Nazi concentration camp. The evil Dr. Klaus Schmidt brings Eric to his office and tells him he will kill his mother unless he can control his abilities. 
When Eric fails to move a coin, Schmidt kills his mother and Eric retaliates, fueling his powers with anger. Meanwhile, in upstate New York, wealthy young Charles Xavier meets a young shapeshifter called Raven and invites her to live with him in his opulent manner. Eighteen years later, in 1962, CIA agent Moira McTaggart discovers the existence of mutants working with Schmidt, now going by Sebastian Shaw, and she invites Charles Xavier to recruit mutants to work for the US government. Charles teams up with Raven, Eric, and together they find a group of young mutants. Soon they learn that Shaw has the intention of beginning a nuclear war to destroy humanity so mutants can become the dominant species. As always, we will quickly run through the cast. We have James McAvoy as Charles Xavier, Michael Fassbender as Eric Lenscher, Rose Byrne as Moira McTaggart, Jennifer Lawrence as Raven, January Jones as Emma Frost, Nicholas Holt as Hank McCoy, Oliver Platt as Man in Black Suit, and yes, he doesn't have a name in this movie, he's just called Man in Black Suit, Jason Fleming as Azazel, Lucas Till as Alex Summers, Eddie Gathegi as Darwin, Zoe Kravitz as Angel, and Kevin Bacon as Sebastian Shaw. We also have cameos in this movie from Hugh Jackman, cameoing as Wolverine, as well as Rebecca Romaine as Older Raven, and also Michael Ironside in a small role as a captain. Stan Lee wanted to make a cameo in this movie, as he always liked to do, in movies for Marvel properties, but he couldn't due to it filming too far away for him to attend. X-Men First Class has a screenplay by Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz, Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughan, a story by Sheldon Turner and Matthew Vaughan, is directed by Matthew Vaughan and is based on X-Men by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And I've gone into the history of X-Men on previous episodes of this podcast. I've done episodes on X-Men and X-Men too. So I'm briefly going to go through the history of X-Men, but I'm not going to go through it in any great detail because I feel like kind of been there, done that already. But created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, the X-Men first appeared in the X-Men number one in September 1963. They are mutants born with an X-gene which manifests superhuman abilities during puberty. The X-Men are the good guys fighting for peace and equality between humans and mutants in a world where mutants are feared, hated and abused. The Brotherhood of Mutants is the opposing viewpoint, also a band of mutants but who see humanity as a threat and that mutants are the superior beings, believing aggression and force are the only way to achieve equality. Stanley based the story of Professor Xavier and Magneto on real-life civil rights activists Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Both men attempting to achieve the same goal of civil rights, but with opposing philosophies and ideologies. Martin Luther King believing in peaceful, non-violent coexistence, and Malcolm X in separatism and black nationalism. Despite having different points of view to the method, their goal was the same, and they had the best interests of their community at heart. Their polarised opinions and approaches were evident, but towards the end of their respective lives, each grew closer to the other's view. Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965 by three black men and Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in 1968 by a white man. While the X-Men were based on the civil rights movement, it goes without saying that their enduring appeal is mostly down to the fact that any marginalised person or community can find solace and understanding within the X-Men, including the weird girl in class, aka me. Up until this point in 2011, We'd had four X-Men movies. We'd had X-Men in 2000, X-Men 2 in 2003, X-Men The Last Stand in 2006, and X-Men Origins Wolverine in 2009. But the idea of a young X-Men movie was originally discussed during production of X-Men 2, and then further during production of X-Men The Last Stand, which coincidentally is a movie that first-class director Matthew Vaughan was up to direct at one point, until he backed out due to the time pressures involved, but more of all that, including time pressures, a little bit later. So they had this idea for a young X-Men movie, which Zach Penn was hired to write and direct in 2004. And at the same time, screenwriter Sheldon Turner was hired to write a spin-off focusing on Magneto. X-Men Origins Magneto, as it was known in 2008, was to be a more somber period tale set between 1939 and 1955 focusing on Eric Lynch's survival in the concentration camps as a young man during the Holocaust, 
meeting and befriending of a young Allied soldier named Charles Xavier during the liberation of the camps. Eric then goes around hunting Nazi war criminals, and his passion for revenge eventually drives a wedge between Eric and Charles. Throughout all of the previous movies, the relationship between Eric and Charles had been one of interest, with two of the greatest actors in the roles, Sir Ian McKellen as Eric and Sir Patrick Stewart as Charles. Now, of course, within the same branding of X-Men Origins Magneto was, of course, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Now, that was actually moving forward with being made, and it would make it to the big screen in 2009 with its own controversies, including a leaked version with unfinished effects doing the rounds on the internet. And despite the star power of Hugh Jackman, who by this point had become an A-list star after starting out in the franchise as a relative unknown, X-Men Origins Wolverine really struggled both critically and commercially, while Wolverine was essentially the star of the X-Men franchise up to that point. The heart of the original trilogy came from Charles and Eric. And really, it made sense to explore Eric's history and how he went from a scared Jewish boy discovering his mutant powers in a concentration camp in, honestly, one of the greatest openings to any movie ever in the original X-Men to a multifaceted, complex villain that you could still relate to. Meanwhile, Blade writer David Escoya was hired to direct X-Men Origins Magneto. Ian McKellen was confirmed that he would reprise his role as a narrator with a new actor cast as Magneto in flashbacks. The movie was planned for a 2009 release the same year as X-Men Origins Wolverine. But while X-Men Origins Wolverine got through the system before the Writers Guild of America strike in 2007 to 2008, X-Men Origins Magneto did not, so it ended up being delayed by that strike. It was delayed further after the relatively poor performance of X-Men Origins Wolverine. By the end of October 2009, producer Lauren Shula Donner confirmed that X-Men Origins Magneto was at the back of the queue of potential X-Men stories because they did have quite a few stories going on and they had multiple avenues of stories that they could go down for this franchise. At the same time, again, Producer Simon Kinberg read the comic series X-Men First Class and suggested that as a topic for a new movie. They liked the title, but not much about the actual storyline itself because it was deemed to be too much like Twilight or John Hughes movies. The idea was, though, to start a new trilogy of X-Men movies after the finishing of the final franchise, which was, of course, X-Men The Last Stand, which had done exceptionally well financially, but not so great critically. And as I mentioned last episode, when you have complex licensing structures in place, in order to keep the license, you have to keep making the movies. They really wanted to keep this money-making franchise going forward. So what they did was they contacted Brian Singer and he was confirmed to return to the X-Men franchise to direct the next big X-Men movie, whether that was Magneto, a Deadpool spin-off was even mooted at the time because... Obviously, the character had appeared in X-Men Origins Wolverine, even though that's not the same Deadpool character that we now know and love, but it's played by the same actor. But, you know, similarly, a Gambit spin-off was also mooted. Again, a character that appeared in X-Men Origins Wolverine. And the Gambit spin-off was still in contention with Channing Tatum on board up until that movie's cancellation in 2019. And it was only cancelled after Disney bought Fox. So the Gambit movie has actually been on the back burner for a while at Fox. But at the time of Brian Singer confirming that he was going to be returning to the franchise to helm more X-Men movies, he was also committed to make a movie called Jack the Giant Killer. It eventually came out, it was called Jack the Giant Slayer. That was due to film in the spring of 2011. Coincidentally, also starring Nicholas Holt, who was also in this movie as Hank McCoy. But... Essentially, X-Men Origins Magneto was effectively cancelled. It wasn't officially cancelled, but it was right at the back of the queue. X-Men First Class was seen as a way to potentially reboot the franchise with the idea of a movie focused on young X-Men and this idea of X-Men First Class. All of these ideas were seen as a way to potentially reboot the franchise. But instead of including new X-Men we hadn't yet met, why not mix everything together and introduce the characters that we have already met as younger people? They had two existing scripts, Zach Penn's Young X-Men script and Sheldon Turner's Magneto script, right there ready to use, along with uncredited rewrites by Jamie Moss and Josh Schwartz, 
And while Brian Singer would deny he used parts of Turner's script for his own draft first-class script, the Writers Guild of America would end up giving Turner a story credit for this movie. It was Brian Singer who introduced the 60s setting during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but he would eventually drop out of directorial duties on X-Men First Class, as it was then known, in March 2010 to focus his time on Jack the Giant Slayer, instead remaining on X-Men First Class as a producer. And I've mentioned this on other X-Men episodes before, so I feel like it's worth mentioning again now that Brian Singer's a sleazeball, and I feel like I have to mention this every single time I cover an X-Men movie, because I don't want anyone to think that celebrating X-Men is celebrating a sexual predator like Brian Singer, because it is not. Brian Singer has allegedly sexually abused men who were underage at the time. It's a disgusting and serious allegation. It's completely abhorrent. And honestly, not anything that I, in this podcast, choose to discuss specifically. But I feel like it's worth mentioning that just because I am choosing to talk about an X-Men movie that happens to involve Brian Singer, that does not mean in any way that I am endorsing Brian Singer. But, you know, enough on Brian Singer because he left first class and we don't have to speak about him anymore. So the director's chair was open. And I mentioned earlier about Matthew Vaughan. Matthew Vaughan was up for directing X-Men The Last Stand and he didn't do that. He stepped away from that project. And then he went on to write and direct the excellent and underrated Kick-Ass, which came out in 2010. And it was Kick-Ass that was the catalyst for Simon Kinberg contacting Matthew Vaughan about directorial duties for first class. But the reason why Matthew Vaughan had pulled out of X-Men The Last Stand was time limitations and pressures on finishing an established trilogy. And it was something that Matthew Vaughan felt that he couldn't do. But with X-Men First Class, this was an opportunity to refresh the series, to put his own stamp on a potential new trilogy. And not only were Fox willing to bury the hatchet on his previous abandoning of The Last Stand, but they were willing to give him complete creative freedom on a period piece set in the 60s, which Matthew Vaughan really wanted to do. He was interested due to his fascination with the 60s Bond franchise and also political thrillers. So Matthew Vaughan signed on to direct X-Men First Class in May 2010. But I mentioned before time pressures. And one of the reasons why he stepped away from The Last Stand was due to the time pressures involved. But X-Men First Class would have the king of time pressures. So let me just quickly go through exactly what Matthew Vaughan was up against because watching this movie, you would never know the time pressures that he was up against. So 13 months from Vaughan signing up, the movie would be released. Fox announced a 3rd of June 2011 release date, which they were not prepared to budge on. So in that 13 months, they had to rewrite the script, do pre-production and casting, they had to film the movie, then do the post-production, editing and visual effects, marketing, promotions and release. All of that in 13 months. And sure, it had been done before. Many movies are made in 13 months, but never an X-Men movie made in 13 months. So it's slightly ironic that he stepped away from The Last Stand due to time pressures, but relished the opportunity to do X-Men First Class. But this was different. This was going to be more of a 60s Cold War drama than a superhero movie. And ultimately, that's what appealed to Vaughan. And he stepped up and he took the responsibility of delivering what essentially is one of the best X-Men movies ever. The first thing he did was he enlisted his regular co-writer, Jane Goldman, and together they rewrote the script for X-Men First Class, putting an existing love triangle between Eric, Charles and Moira, and also the character of Sunspot, and focusing on the relationship between Eric and Charles, affectionately known in the shipping fandom as Cherick. Vaughan would credit Batman Begins and the 2009 reboot of Star Trek for inspiring his reboot on the X-Men material, because at this time it wasn't really considered a prequel it would be Days of Future Past, which would retcon First Class into a prequel, as well as a sequel to The Last Stand, as well as splitting off into a new timeline, therefore changing the events of the 2000 to 2006 movie franchise. But I'll put that discussion on hold till I inevitably discuss Days of Future Past. And really, this is a movie that soars on its tremendous casting choices and the way the cast prepared for their roles. 
2006 BAFTA Rising Star winner and double BAFTA nominee James McAvoy was Matthew Vaughan's first choice to play Charles Xavier. And while he didn't read X-Men comics, he was a huge fan of the animated series. Completely get you there, James. He wanted to play Charles as a young, egotistical and privileged, but brilliant man who uses his powers to chat up girls and to show that Professor X didn't start out as this selfless leader, but it's something that his experiences lead him to. And James McAvoy had worked with Michael Fassbender before in the 2000 limited series Band of Brothers, and Michael Fassbender knew very little about the comics or the X-Men, but was attracted to the character of Eric due to his Machiavellian nature and the evolution of his character arc from aligning himself with Charles to their contrasting beliefs splitting them up. McAvoy and Fassbender grounded this story, and Eric and Charles had to be a believable friendship. The two read together in auditions, and they were both perfect. And Michael Fassbender had a particularly good 2011 as well. He received acclaim and awards nominations for his role in Steve McQueen's Shame and Kerry Fukunuga's adaptation of Jane Eyre. Both McAvoy and Fassbender avoided copying Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, instead working on how these two men could have such similar ideals but garner such different outcomes. X-Men as a movie franchise had never before really capitalised on its civil rights roots. And while it doesn't reference the civil rights movement literally, it deals with it more directly than any other X-Men movie, actually any other X-Men movie past or present, because no other X-Men movie has actually gone into this in such detail. And it's an X-Men movie grounded in reality, and not just with its ties to the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's grounded through its characters, the two sides of the same coin, so to speak. And this is obviously something that the movie portrays constantly. X-Men First Class takes great pains to show how similar Eric and Charles's ideals are, but also how different their upbringing and lives were. Both of these men want the same thing, but have very different ideologies. Charles believing in peaceful integration, humans and mutants working together, but Eric believing in protecting mutants first and foremost against humans who will enslave them. And he has experience of this, after all. He's experienced the worst of humanity during the Holocaust. And it's a fascinating exploration of the human condition, about nature versus nurture, and often about how we become the very thing that we're trying not to be. The creation of Magneto is at the hands of three men, Eric himself, Charles, and Sebastian Shaw, aka Dr. Klaus Schmidt, a sociopath who will do anything to bring out Eric's power, and a mutant fully believing in the superiority of mutant kind. Kevin Bacon was cast as the former Nazi scientist and leader of the Hellfire Club because he could portray the multiple facets of Shaw and had the bravado that Shaw needed, a charisma, you know, he could be the good guy in a movie or the bad guy. But in his mind, Shaw is the hero and his plan to start a nuclear war proves the stupidity and mediocrity of humanity. The character in the comics looked quite different though, so the production discarded those looks so, and I quote, he wouldn't look like an Austin Powers villain. Which is quite apt really because Austin Powers is also set in the 60s and Austin Powers is also groovy baby, bit like mutations. Anyway, the Cuban Missile Crisis arc and the resulting nuclear war resurrects a central concept from the comics, namely that radiation is one of the causes of genetic mutation in the X-Men fictional universe into this storyline. And this concept had fallen out of favour in recent years, and comic book writers had increasingly attributed mutation to evolution and natural selection, something that the original movies touch on with puberty being the start of mutation becoming evident. But here in this movie, the child versions of Charles, Eric and Raven all have mutations pre-puberty. Speaking of Raven, also a cue for the production was the casting of Jennifer Lawrence, pre-Hunger Games worldwide fame and Silver Linings playbook taking her to awards glory. Lawrence was cast by Vaughan because he believed she would be able to represent the character's fragility and strength through her transformation from a surrogate sister and ally to Charles to starting to side with and believe in the philosophies of Eric. Mystique's blue form required eight hours of makeup, which included latex pieces and body paint applied to her otherwise naked body, similar to what Rebecca Romaine had done in the previous films. Lawrence had to report a set at 2am as part of this process. As Raven embraces her mutation throughout the film, she begins to become more comfortable with the mystique persona, but Lawrence spent a lot of time out of the makeup, mostly due to the storyline demanding it with the character being ashamed of her mutation, but also due to the time constraints of the production, which again, 
lots of time constraints on this movie. So they had to assemble this cast ready for principal photography to begin in August 2010. And filming started in Oxford, moving to Pinewood Studios, and then to Georgia, USA in October 2010, and on location in Argentina. It wrapped its initial shoot in December 2010, with the third act only half complete, because the filmmakers realised that their original ending didn't work, and so reshoots occurred into April 2011, which left only three to four weeks of post-production before the film's premiere in May 2011. And no, you did not mishear what I just said. The movie didn't have a complete ending finished until literally days before release. So the reason this movie is and looks as good as it does is really quite extraordinary. Emphasis on the X there. Matthew Vaughan realised that the best way to do a prequel to an existing franchise, which was only 10 years old at this point, by the way, was to emulate its most harrowing scene. So they copied shot for shot the opening of X-Men with a young Eric Lenscher separated from his parents in a Nazi concentration camp with an addition, Kevin Bacon's Sebastian Shaw overlooking the proceedings with intrigue at this young boy with incredible powers. And what could the Nazis do with those powers? And indeed, we don't know what the Nazis did with those powers between the ages of 12 to the early 30s Eric that we meet in the 1960s. Vaughan has said that he shot the movie in the style of 1960s films with very traditional framing and camera movement and anamorphic format to create a widescreen experience which is emblematic of 60s movies such as the James Bond films. To get the image he desired for the film, he had to hire five cinematographers and four assistant directors, with sole cinematography credit going to John Matheson, who arrived halfway through the shoot and did quote-unquote 45 to 55 percent of the work. The character of Eric was shot and dressed to emulate Sean Connery's 60s James Bond. And just FYI, where is the Fassbender for Bond campaign? Because I've not seen it, but based on this movie, I think it needs to happen. Unlike the 2000s movies, though, this X-Men embraced its comic book roots, including comic book accurate costumes, which still invoke the 60s feel, while also embracing 60s materials like Kevlar and nylon. And additionally, the women in this movie are also treated authentically to the 60s with rampant misogyny. Even the most powerful women, look at someone like Emma Frost. Emma Frost is one of the most powerful mutants in X-Men history. And yet, she's basically just a glorified waitress and sex kitten most of the time. Matthew Vaughan wanted this to be a period piece without alienating the young fan base who would probably avoid a period piece. So I've mentioned this movie was put together ridiculously quickly, and yet you would never guess that the movie was put together so quickly because the effects work in this movie still look great. They still mostly hold up. Considering the ending was hastily reshot, I think you can forgive some slight issues with the visual effects here. And in a cool link to the last episode on Spider-Man, the visual effects were also designed by John Dykstra, with several effects studios working on the characters and effects. Rhythm and Hughes, Cinesite, Luma Pictures, Digital Domain, MPC, and Weta Digital. Once January Jones was cast as Emma Frost, the original test for her diamond skin could be elaborated on by Rhythm and Hughes, and the first problem was how to make her diamond features still look like January Jones. Models of Jones were built from scratch based on her exact features. When it came to shooting the movie, Jones wouldn't be using a tracking or mocap suit, so Vaughan would shoot the scenes of Emma and her transformations with Jones as her usual self, and then the effect scene superimposed her diamond form, along with light passing through her and reflection and refraction. Transitions from flesh to diamond were created in Houdini by using a frosting effect. Rhythm and Hughes also worked on Mystique's transformations, which were a mixture of practical effects and CG, using proprietary animation software called Voodoo for the scales, which used scale geometry lined up with the practical makeup, animated to come out of the skin and then lie down. First Class also included hair transitions from Lawrence's long blonde hair to Mystique's shorter red hair, including scales coming up through the hair. Rhythm and Hughes also worked on Angel's wings, including an iridescent shader, and obviously the movie involved a lot of wire work for flying, and that included having the character suspended on wires under a helicopter. Azazel, canonically the father of Nightcrawler, and canonically, Mystique is Nightcrawler's mother, but none of that makes any sense when you're talking about the movies. 
I mentioned in the episode I did on X-Men 2 that the Nightcrawler White House scene is still one of the best cold opens of MVP ever, and I still stand by that. Nightcrawler is one of the most fantastic X-Men brought to screen, and while his old dad, Azazel, doesn't get as much screen time or any character development, the visual effects team at Cinecide wanted to pay homage to Nightcrawler by having Azazel's transportations mimic Nightcrawler's. But instead of blue smoke, to have red smoke and fire because Azazel is the literal devil, Azazel was rotomated to simulate the smoke and his tail was also CG'd into scenes, similarly to Nightcrawler's. Cinecide developed a proprietary fluid shader for the smoke and fire simulation that could be packaged into an FX rig, individual fire fluid simulation for each of the characters, and an overall smoke fluid simulation that was emitted from all of the characters which was created in fire. For the fire, they filled the body with particles which would then be used to emit the fire fluid and then animated their size so that if it was an incoming transport, the fire portal would move from the front to the back and linger a little behind Azazel and the reverse for an outgoing transport. This was all rendered with PR Man through Renderman Studio with three heat ranges being assigned either a red, green or blue colour which gave a lot of control to quickly adjust colour and opacity to create realistic looking fire. Luma Pictures was in charge of visual effects for three characters, Banshee, Havoc and Darwin, as well as many set extensions and specific shots involving the radio telescope. Nicholas Athady, the visual effects supervisor and NPC, oversaw the changes of Hank McCoy into Beast, including a near-perfect digital human foot, Riptide's tornadoes, the destruction of Shaw's yacht and Shaw's submarine escape. While Nicholas Holt was transformed into Beast with practical makeup effects, MPC also created two fully CG face replacements for Beast, seen in the X-Jet hangout and later on the plane. Eric Lenscher confronts Sebastian Shaw on his opulent yacht and uses his mutant powers to control the anchor and demolish the boat at one point in the film. MPC Vancouver had developed a destruction tomb called Carly for the Japanese temple in Sucker Punch, which they adapted for the scene in which Magneto destroys the boat. Itself, a digital yacht based on a real boat shot in Georgia with the yacht's steel, wood, plastic and glass all reacting appropriately to being pounded by an anchor and chain. The finale, a climactic naval battle near Cuba, following Shaw's orchestration of the missile crisis, destruction of Shaw's submarine scenes on a nearby beach, and the Navy's near annihilation by their own missiles was all handled by Weta Digital, where scenes at Jekyll Island in Georgia which was chosen because it matched Cuba's white sandy beaches and palm trees, which, by the way, most of the palm trees had actually been planted for the shoot and had subsequently died because it was freezing cold at the time. Those trees had to actually be digitally colour-corrected back to green. But anyway, for the missile standoff, Weta built three battleship types per fleet and other smaller ships and a freighter, Shaw's submarine and the X-Jet using its tried and tested modelling tools, Exotic Matters Nillard was used for water simulations in combination with Weta's own proprietary fluid simulation software, which is called Synapse. A particularly complicated scene included the emergence of Shaw's submarine from the water pulled out by Eric. Weta visual effects supervisor Guy Williams would say that the hardest part of the shot was the scale. Weta undertook significant research on Russian and US military hardware, including 12-foot-long tomahawks and a harpoon for the finale missile launch which was eventually stopped by Eric, who then turns the missiles back on the Soviet and US navies. The flight of missiles approaching the beach appeared to be too close to the camera at first, but it was actually around 100 yards distance due to its sheer size. In terms of relative sizes, animators have to bear that in mind when creating a fictitious sense of perspective. Weta's fluid simulation software was used to construct the missile exhaust trails and eventual mid-air explosion as well as the physics of the missile exhausts when they came to a stop. And most of the scenes coming to the actual finale are scenes from the movie interspersed with actual broadcasts about the Cuban Missile Crisis, an event that very almost did start nuclear war between the US and the Soviet Union in the 1960s. And, well, it's not lost on anyone that the current conflict in Ukraine could potentially escalate into Russia deploying its arsenal of nuclear weapons. And we can only hope that Putin doesn't stoop to the lowest levels that he possibly could stoop. Speaking of a man who stoops to the lowest possible levels, let's move on to a man who soars to the highest heights of manhood. And that is moving on to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. So if you don't know, the obligatory Keanu reference is where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And 
really, yes, I'm going to be going there because Keanu Reeves is genuinely a first-class human being. He's a wonderful man. He's generous with his time. He's a philanthropist. He donates money to charity. He gives money to the crews of his movies. He helps out on his movies. He's a genuinely first-class human being. So the easiest way that I can link him to X-Men First Class because linking him to the X-Men, not very easy. Linking him as a first-class human being, incredibly easy. And he's genuinely well worth the adulation as well. I want to move on to the music. And I usually start with the score, but I actually want to start with an instrumental version of Niles Barkley's run, I'm a Natural Disaster. And you wouldn't expect a Niles Barkley song in an X-Men movie, and definitely not an X-Men movie set in the 60s, but the song run, I'm a Natural Disaster, itself samples music from the 60s including Strawberry Alarm Clocks Starting Out the Day and Junior Jet Set from Keith Mansfield. And this features in the movie, along with a score by Henry Jackman, which is terrific, by the way. There's a track on the Henry Jackman score called Frankenstein's Monster, which is the theme used for Eric. It's also paralleled with a similar theme used for Shaw, which really sets up this perverted father-son relationship that they have. I'm a huge fan of the track Frankenstein's Monster. It's often used when the movie focuses on Eric, but especially the scenes in Argentina. If you watch that scene on Argentina in YouTube, the music that's used in that scene is called Frankenstein's Monster, and it's wonderful. And also for the second time, Take That worked with Matthew Vaughan on a song for the soundtrack of one of his movies. They last did it for the movie Stardust, which I've also done an episode on. It's also directed and written by Matthew Vaughan, and it's also an absolutely underrated, terrific movie. The Take That song is called Love Love. It was written by the band and it appears on the end credits. So I just want to quickly touch on the marketing for this movie because although this movie is absolutely terrific, the marketing kind of wasn't because there was a first batch of X-Men First Class posters that did the round and they were really, really good. And then there was a second batch of posters that are often held up as a paragon of bad design, often called some of the worst posters ever made. So the posters I'm talking about are the floating heads on the black silhouettes. They are pretty notorious. Uh, and a lot of people at the time thought that these posters were fan-made, but they weren't. They were actual, genuine studio posters for this movie. Luckily, the eventual posters that we got were a hell of a lot better. But those floating head X-Men First Class posters literally did not sell this movie at all. And luckily, not a lot of people paid attention to those terrible posters because X-Men First Class premiered at the Siegfeld Theatre in New York City on 25th of May 2011. So that was, as I said, literally weeks after those reshoots were wrapped. The movie went on general release on the 3rd of June 2011, as previously agreed. No one knew the film's post-production finish and release was so close, and no one would know. Because while the box office was lower than X-Men The Last Stand, X-Men 2 and X-Men Origins Wolverine, it opened at the same level as the first X-Men movie, and for what was essentially a reboot and the start of a new franchise, Fox executives were happy. It opened at number one at the box office, dropping to number two in its second week due to Super 8. It was also out at the same time as some huge movies, The Hangover Part 2, Kung Fu Panda 2, Pokes of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, and Bridesmaids as well. Done an episode on Bridesmaids, episode 40. Wonderful movie, that one. So financially, X-Men First Class made $146.4 million domestically in the US, $206.2 million internationally, for a worldwide total gross of $352.6 million, about $20 million less than X-Men Origins Wolverine, and about $50 million more than X-Men in 2000. And this was on a budget of $160 million. So financially, it did pretty much what Fox executives were expecting. And critically, on Rotten Tomatoes, which, yeah, I know, it's not the be-all and end-all of ratings, but across the whole X-Men franchise, only Logan and Days of Future Past are rated higher by critics. So X-Men First Class has an 86% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes and overall is incredibly critically acclaimed. And while there's no real awards to speak of, there were some, but minor awards. I want to quickly mention the sequels. So X-Men Days of Future Past was essentially a sequel to this movie and also a sequel to X-Men The Last Stand, which retconned this movie 
into a prequel of that movie, as well as X-Men Days of Future Past also being a prequel. More direct sequel to this movie was X-Men Apocalypse, and then X-Men Dark Phoenix came out as well. This is like Heroes Across the Decades for X-Men movies, because this movie is set in the 60s, X-Men Days of Future Past is set in the 70s, X-Men Apocalypse is set in the 80s, and Dark Phoenix in the 90s, and yet none of the people age in the second way. <laughs> it's quite funny when you think about it, but there's a lot of retconning going on in this series, and I am a huge fan of Days of Future Past. I love the fact that they essentially bring all of these characters together. It is essentially the multiverse before the multiverse. And I am going to be doing a future episode on X-Men Days of Future Past, but I do actually wish that that movie focused a little bit more on the relationship this movie focuses on, because Days of Future Past is more of an X-Men movie. Whereas this is more of a Charles and Eric movie. And I'm quite invested in the Charles and Eric relationship. So maybe that's why I love this movie so much. But I also do another good X-Men superhero bash. So Days of Future Past is kind of a bit of the best of both worlds. X-Men Apocalypse. I was really, really excited for Apocalypse because as a fan of the animated series, Apocalypse was one of those villains that was just completely terrifying. Him, along with Mr. Sinister, I was completely terrified of both of them. And Apocalypse, as a movie and as a villain, didn't quite deliver for me, and I suspect for a lot of people as well, even though it's the wonderful Oscar Isaac. Um, I love him. Oh, I love Oscar Isaac so much. But you don't get Oscar Isaac in your movie and cover him with loads of makeup because you want to see that face. Uh, and let's be honest, Oscar Isaac is... Mwah, chef's kiss. Anyway, I've done an episode on Dark Phoenix, actually. It was one of my very first episodes on this podcast. So it's a very early episode. It's actually with a guest as well. Chin Lin from the Bingeables podcast came on to talk about Dark Phoenix. So I've kind of done all this a bit backwards, but now the X-Men are back with Marvel. I think it's going to be interesting to see how Marvel deal with the X-Men, how they introduce the X-Men. There's a lot of theories at the moment as to how they're going to introduce the X-Men. Are they going to bring back McAvoy and Fassbender? Or are they going to bring back Stuart and McKellen? I kind of don't see them bringing back Stuart and McKellen, but I can absolutely see them bringing back McAvoy and Fassbender. And I actually hope that they do because these guys are phenomenal. I can't say enough good things about McAvoy and Fassbender. Let's move on to social media thoughts. We're going to start with the patrons of this podcast. And we're going to start with perennial commenter Andy, who says, Some are Baptists, but as Catholic, I'm an X-Men first class man. Initially writing it off as a terrible idea in 2010, I'm so very happy that I was wrong. A film that leans hard into the 60s era of the team, giving us characters I have loved for decades, especially Havoc, and gives us, sorry Serene, the best on-screen Magneto. Paired with an amazing theme, Michael Fassbender ignites every scene he's in. Also kudos for finding a place in comic book movie Villandom for Kevin Bacon, who rocked it as Sebastian Shaw. This is my favourite of all the X-Men movies and definitely got the series off on the wrong footing before Apocalypse, that is. I kind of think you mean off on the right footing. But, you know, I'm wrong burgundy. I just read what's on the teleprompter and uh, it says wrong footing. So I'm reading wrong footing, but I think you mean right footing. And we also have a patron comment from Mike who says, I didn't have quite the negative reaction as my geek son's partner when Word of X-Men First Class was announced, but I still had apprehensions. Thankfully, very few of them were realised. This movie is a treat. The partnership and friendship between Xavier and Magneto is really the core of this film, and thankfully McAvoy and Fassbender pull it off wonderfully. The film does a fantastic job of showing how their ideologies both connect the two as well as drive them apart. Rose Byrne also shines as Moira, as do Nicholas Holt, Lucas Till and the O'Neill actors. And who knew the 60s look worked so well for Kevin Bacon? Still, the movie is not without several flaws. Other than Bacon, Sebastian Shaw, most of the other villains are fairly wasted. Come on, we all know exactly why January Jones was cast as the scantily clad Emma Frost. All in all, a great start to the new series of X-Men movies which peaked in Days of Future Past, then crashed and burned so spectacularly after that. And Andy and Mike, they both run the Podcast Geek Salad. So if you are interested in comic books, comic book movies, movies, TV, games, books, anything to do with geek stuff, then 
you need to listen to their podcast, Geek Salad. So I will put some information in the show notes. Please have a listen to Geek Salad. Genuinely, if you love geek stuff like I do, then you will absolutely love that podcast. And we also have a patron comment from Sunny who says, As a huge X-Men fan, I was looking forward to this movie and seeing how James McAvoy played Professor X. I loved how it rebooted the franchise. And Sunny also has her own podcast. She hosts it with her sister Brandy. It's basically about liars and the dirty, dirty cheats of the world. It's called Book of Lies. And if you're interested in true life stories of cheaters and liars and fraud and how you can avoid getting duped by these people, then you should absolutely listen to Book of Lies. I'll put some information in the show notes for Sunny's podcast too. And the final patron comment comes from Derek who says, This one really leans into the complexity of the mutant debate. With the tragedy of mutants finding a family and watching it all fall apart under the weight of different politics. Charles and Eric are brothers and end the movie as enemies, mutant and proud. But Derek, along with his amazing wife, Laurel, they host the podcast, The Midnight Myth. I speak about The Midnight Myth quite a lot because I genuinely adore their podcast. It's basically a podcast that takes history, philosophy and mythology and applies that to... Topics like X-Men, topics in our popular culture. And it's genuinely a fascinating podcast and they're amazing. So I'll put some information in the show notes. Take a listen to the Midnight Myth. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at D.W. Lundberg, who said, One of the better X-Men's because of its rich period setting, its eclectic cast and its director's clear personal vision. The timeline doesn't line up with the other films, but I don't care. Vaughn has a story to tell and tells it confidently. And that makes all the difference. At Andrew Gorge said, Interesting to see Ernie Xavier had to push the button on the side of his head to use his powers before he went wireless in his later years. And included a gif of James McAvoy giving a little bit of a side head touch there just to, you know, read the minds. At Holmes Movies Pod said, After two misfires in that universe, X-Men First Class was a breath of fresh air. A fun 60s set action film that nicely blends the James Bond spy genre in a superhero film. Cast were great, like James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender and Kevin Bacon. Very nice direction from Matthew Vaughan. At Harry Bent Movies said, Like most, was worried about this, and there are mistakes made, especially around Mystique and some of the fringe mutants. However, this was the film that showed Charles and Eric's relationship, and the amazing portrayals is the key to what makes the X-Men so interesting. At Harley Mumford said, I was sceptical going in, but was pleasantly surprised to see how great this movie turned out and how much it deepened the relationship between Professor X and Magneto in particular. Fassbender and McAvoy have fantastic chemistry with incredible takes on these iconic characters. At Retro Ramble Blog said, One of the best X-Men films with great performances from the leads would happily watch a Fassbender solo Magneto film. The only thing that frustrates me is it can't decide whether it's a full fresh reboot or prequel. And that's from George. Hi, George. At Giles underscore Goff said, This film is a coherent origin story interwoven with historical events that makes the 60s look cool and scary at the same time. I'd struggle to think of a superhero story that's a period piece as well. Not as bombastic as Days of Future Past, but beautifully put together. At MikeB196 said, Probably my favourite X-Men film. The young cast are a breath of fresh air and Fassbender's hunting down of his Nazi persecutors could be worth a movie in its own right. A classy and thoughtful effort made with heart and care for the characters. At Needed Road said, First Class I think is my favourite X-Men film and I'll always maintain that Guy Ritchie's early films were hits because of Vaughn, who arguably has gone on to become a better filmmaker. At Mr. London underscore NCB said, The X-Men franchise has been so stop-start over its many installments, incredibly disappointing given I love the comics, but many of the films insisted on changing character motivations or shoehorning in brief cameos. Thank God for First Class, it finally got everything right. And at Kevin underscore the critics said, I remember being apprehensive about younger actors playing them. I'd grown up with Stuart and McKinnon and thought nobody could match them. Then I was proven wrong and got what would be one of my favourite superhero films in the bargain. Moving over to Instagram, at sassylassie76 said, 
I'm a bit mixed on this film. I really enjoy seeing Magneto and Professor Xavier as young men. I thought the casting of McAvoy and Fassbender was great for those characters. I wasn't as excited about the rest of the casting, though, and ended up not being as excited by the story as I thought I would be based on the trailers. I liked later sequels to this film much more, but found this an adequate reboot slash reintroduction of the X-Men. At Dave underscore J underscore Banff said, Okay, firstly, we need to talk about how great Heroes Through the Decades has been. I've loved every episode. Great work, M. Thank you, Dave. I love you. Uh, <laughs> I did not pay Dave to say that, I promise, but checks in the post, Dave. Anyway, Dave continues. On to First Class. Overall, it's a good movie. It was a good soft reboot, but I don't think it sticks to the landing. As a long-term X-Men fan, I didn't like the roster of mutants for First Class. I'm not saying I wanted the original five, but maybe I did. I don't think Jennifer Lawrence was the best choice for Mystique, but Fassbender and McAvoy were great playing off each other. I could continue, but I won't. Keep up the great podcasting. Thank you, Dave. You're amazing. And at Projecting Film said, I wish the movies had stayed in the 60s. Also, stay away from a Brian Singer return. Don't we all? And moving over to Facebook, we have Tony, who said, Excellent First Class was an excellent film. Sebastian Shaw, Kevin Bacon, was an amazing villain, though several other characters were underdeveloped. The visuals, soundtrack and special effects were top-notch. And finally, Vicky, who says, I love it. McAvoy and Fassbender are wonderfully cast, and I love the 60s-ness of it all. I especially love the montage when they're finding the young mutants. And the cameo actually made me squeal out loud in the cinema. Thank you to everyone for providing your comments for X-Men First Class. So many amazing comments for X-Men First Class as well. Genuinely, I'm so delighted that everyone loves X-Men First Class. Pretty much just as much as I do. But no matter the comments, no matter whether you love it or you dislike it, I'm just really grateful for everyone giving up their time, posting comments on social media so I can read them out. Thank you so much. To everyone, to the patrons, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for your comments for X-Men First Class. I think I've made it quite clear how I feel about this movie, but I feel like I need to reiterate just how special I think First Class is. The fact that Sebastian Shaw pushes Eric to utilize his abilities to move a Nazi currency while putting a gun to his mother's head for motivation just to figure out what his gifts are all about. And the fact that even under duress, Eric is powerless to stop this atrocious thing happening. So Shaw orders Eric's mother's execution. And this is possibly one of several terrible things that happen to Eric in these concentration camps that we never know about. But the story of Eric becoming Magneto is truly heartbreaking. Even more so when you realize that Charles also plays his own part in it albeit unwittingly. The fact both men want the same thing and yet aren't willing to follow the same path. And both of their reasons why are completely valid. The fact this isn't a standard X-Men story works to its credit. This is a story about Eric and Charles. Everyone else is just a bystander into these men becoming who they would become. And like its franchise stablemate Logan, it's raw and powerful in its depictions of what motivates humanity to succeed as well as destroy. X-Men has always been about the marginalized in society, the fear that they can elicit in those who aren't marginalized. And sure, this movie sidelines a lot of characters. It disposes of some of them far too quickly. Interesting mutants like Darwin are removed pretty early on, and the others get little to no character development, but it's kind of okay when the main focus, the Charles and Eric story, is so fully fleshed out. And so interesting. James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender, like Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellar before them, take the material they have and just elevate it beyond anything you could imagine. You can relate to Charles's optimism, just as you can to Eric's pessimism. And unlike the other movies, it's a well-crafted, character-driven story. And really, it's a shame the franchise going forward, as much as I enjoy Days of Future Past, goes back to those standard superhero tropes. Each time, each movie, giving McAvoy and Fassbender less to do and less screen time together. Because apart, they're incredible. Eric's scenes at Via Giselle are 
as he would say, perfection. Very much Inglorious Bastards vibes here and all the better for it. But together, the moving the satellite dish scene, the travelling around picking up mutants montage, they're spectacular. The Stuart McKellen pairing has additional layers of depth now, thanks to the McAvoy Fassbender pairing, despite them not really being linked canonically until the next movie in this franchise. Both characters are right, both characters are wrong, and their inevitable friendship is juxtaposed with their inevitable separation. Both trying to enact their own will on the other and both unwilling to compromise on their values and both picking up their followers along the way, with Charles's dismissal of Raven's real form being the catalyst for her siding with Eric, who does accept her, blue skin and all, and not only accepts her but desires her for it. Charles can talk about his groovy mutations to pick up uni students, but even he can't see how bigoted he is for thinking heterochromia is a groovy mutation but that Raven has to literally cover herself up to be accepted. Of course, Charles has her best interests at heart, but you can completely understand how Raven could be attracted to Eric's acceptance of her. And the way this movie is shot to show the similarities between Charles and Eric and the ultimate demise of their friendship, the scene in which Eric shoots a coin through Sebastian Shaw's skull, knowing Charles is connected and Charles can feel it, is so beautifully shot and so painful to watch as well. And then you realise this is a movie that was essentially three movies mushed into one with two different scripts. How quickly this all came together, literally within 13 months, including a pretty much whole third act reshoot. And it's incredible that this movie is as good as it is. It almost has no right to be. But as Eric himself says, it's perfection. And I'm going to say it, X-Men First Class is First Class. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on X-Men First Class. There are several ways that you can get involved and you can help this podcast grow and reach more people. So the easiest way that you can get involved is you can get involved with comments. The thoughts posts for comments go up on a Saturday on social media. You can go to Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Verbal Diorama. You can also follow me on that if you wish. You can comment on the thoughts post and I will read your comments like I did with the ones above in the episode and I will also credit you for your comment. You can also leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast, ideally five stars. And you can also tell your friends and family about this podcast, especially if they're an X-Men fan because I've got a lot of X-Men episodes. And if you did like this episode, you might also like the following movies slash episodes. So I'm going to recommend to you episode 11, X-Men Dark Phoenix. It is an early episode. So the audio is probably not as great and it is a slightly longer episode, but my guest Chin Lin and I, we do talk about Dark Phoenix. We recorded that episode shortly after Dark Phoenix came out. And at the time, I was experimenting with different things on the podcast and I don't really talk about new movies anymore. But back in the day, I did talk about X-Men Dark Phoenix and it was a really interesting discussion with Chin Lin. So that is episode 11. Episode 25, Stardust, which is another Matthew Vaughan and Jane Goldman movie, and it's terrific. Genuinely brilliant fun. It's such a sweet, lovely movie, and more movies should be like Stardust. I love Stardust. Episode 56, the original X-Men movie. One of the first movies that I was genuinely excited to see at the cinema, and it did not disappoint me. Doesn't quite hold up as well as other X-Men movies, but still an absolute treat. Episode 102, Deadpool, because, well, Deadpool was in the X-Men at one point, and obviously he was in X-Men Origins Wolverine, and his solo movie was so terrific. Literally, I'm so glad they did this Deadpool and not the X-Men Origins Wolverine Deadpool. But Deadpool has a really interesting story behind it too. And like X-Men First Class, no one saw Deadpool coming, and Deadpool was a phenomenal hit. So yeah, if you've not seen Deadpool... It's brilliant fun. Check that out. And episode 111, which was on X-Men 2, which, again, one of the greatest cold opens of any movie ever. I love the character of Nightcrawler. I love that movie. It still brings me so much joy to watch X-Men 2. As I said, I'm a huge X-Men fan, so expect lots more X-Men on this podcast in the future. But let me know. Give me feedback on my recommendations. So... The next episode is the finale of Heroes Through the Decades. So we've been through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, 10s. And now we're going into this decade, the 2020s, and another reboot. Or is it a sequel? Bit of both.
Because when James Gunn was fired from Marvel for Guardians of the Galaxy 3, he sidestepped over to DC to make The Suicide Squad. And The Suicide Squad, part sequel, part reboot, part remake, and seriously one of the best things that DC has ever put to celluloid. Well, digital celluloid anyway. Now I've not done an episode on 2016's Suicide Squad, and it's a movie that I hate less than most. I actually find that movie okay, and I do plan to talk in some detail about Suicide Squad and obviously the transition over to The Suicide Squad and how that all came to be so soon after Suicide Squad. But whether you're a fan of Suicide Squad, The Suicide Squad, or any Suicide Squad, join me for the next episode to talk about The Suicide Squad, because it's going to be fun and hopefully no one will get killed. Now, this podcast is completely free and it always will be free. But if you do want to support the show financially, you can do so at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. I'm so grateful to some amazing people who support this podcast financially. So I'd like to give them a little bit of a shout out. So thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama, Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Moit, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D, Sonny and Drew. Patrons and proud. I have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can buy the mummy-inspired t-shirts. You can also support this podcast at the same time. You can get in touch. You can send me an email, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can fill out the contact form at verbaldiorama.com. You can also see all of the old episodes on there. And you can also find me at Film Stories. It's filmstories.co.uk. You can buy issues of the magazine. The latest issue of the magazine has a very cathartic feature that I wrote on Jess. Jess was my cat. She died in March. And I did a very emotional episode in March on Deep Blue Sea. And it was dedicated to her. And now, not only is she immortalized in podcasting forever, because she featured on several episodes of this podcast, she's now also immortalized in column form as well. She has her picture in Film Stories magazine. She has her picture in people's houses, which is amazing. And I'm getting emotional and sorry, but I write in Film Stories magazine all about independent podcasting and basically everything that I go through being an independent podcaster. And that includes the highest highs. And it includes the lowest lows as well. And I also write bits for the website. But yeah, find me at Film Stories, buy a copy of that magazine, get a wonderful picture of Jess and maybe read about her and about what she meant to me and have her picture in your house. You don't need to put it up or anything, but just have a look at her lovely little face. And finally... Excuse me, I'm Eric Lentra. Charles Xavier. Go f*** yourself. Language Logan. Bye. Movie